1: Welcome back to the Nook, welcome to Tales to Terrify, welcome to show 37. Come in, grab a snack, grab something cool, or at this wonderful change of season, grab something warm, or at least something tepid from the sidebar, then sit, relax. First, I want to thank you for your comments last week. And in previous weeks. And thank you for the suggestions. More anon. First, this past week was a busy one. I had a head and chest cold, and we—and by we, I mean Scott and Harry and Tony and company— worked on Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Things are now more or less closed, and things must be fussed with in the way of things, don't you know? But the point is, the book, the book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, is now nearly ready to go to press. So, unlimber your wallets and get ready to buy. You'll just love your copy, and so will your giftless chums. End. Don't forget our contiguous neighborhoods in the District of Wonders, the wild and woolly precinct of Protecting Project Pulp, the damp, dark streets and corridors of Crime City Central, and not to forget the starport wherein is birthed the good ship Starship Sofa. As someone says, there's a story for everyone in the District of Wonders network. Come and find yours. Okay. And, speaking of the starship, I believe it is not too late to reserve your spot for November 11. What's happening on November 11, you ask? Well, that is when Joe Haldeman, you know who Joe Haldeman is, yes, the author of The Forever War, Forever Peace, Earthbound, and so on and so on, Joe will take the mic to share his experiences in the world of science fiction, literature, and business, and he will share it with you. This won't be an old-time how-to lecture, no, no, no. You will be in a front-row seat as one of the most celebrated minds of the science fiction literary community talks about his journey within the genre. And, of course, you'll be there as Joe shares the kind of personal advice and anecdotes you won't find in a writer's guide. You'll learn how the publishing industry has and has not changed over the years, and what first led Joe Haldeman to be in a lifelong relationship with science fiction. You don't want to miss this, so go to the thestarshipsofa.com and click on the green and white button where the friendly gray peers from the dark. As mentioned, class begins Sunday, November 11. Virtual seats are limited, so enroll today. Okay? Okay, now, snuggle up. Last week, you may remember, I rambled on about stooges and some other scary stuff. I did so so in response to a note left at the Tales to Terrify forum. Said note indicated that more classic and or straightforward horror tales were wanted here. One poster suggested that what he would like was to hear me read a specific tale by a certain writer. The exchange caused me to suggest on the Tales to Terrify Facebook page, which you all should go and like, that sometime soon I would post a Lovecraft tale and a modern Lovecraftian piece. Well, quicker than I thought possible. That episode is this one. And so, tonight, we have a 1922 story by H.P. Lovecraft— and if you want to know more about Mr. Lovecraft, do some homework, okay? Look him up. Pull a book from your shelf and read. The mind and art of so many modern and contemporary writers of horror arises from Lovecraft's fever dreams. So, so let's see how to do this. Yes, tonight will begin a time ago. The story I'm about to read was first published in Weird Tales. While H.P. wrote it in September of 1922, it wasn't published in Weird Tales until February of 1924. The impetus to pen the story, Lovecraft says, was a visit to the Flatbush Dutch Reformed Church in Brooklyn with a friend, Reinhard Kleiner. Well, look, I'll let H.P. speak for himself. After we hear... The Hound. In my tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping, and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound, it is not a dream, it is not, I fear, even madness, for too much already has happened to give me these merciful doubts. St. John is a mangled corpse, I, I alone know why, and, and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shapeless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, but even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists, the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites, all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Heisman's were soon exhausted of thrills till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures, It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity. That hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place, where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled an universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the lines of red charnel things hand in hand woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odors our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funereal lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense— of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead and sometimes, sometimes, how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies, alternating with comely, lifelike bodies perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of shapes and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of new buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio bound in tanned human skin held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumoured Goya had perpetrated but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, string, brass and woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemoniacal ghastliness, whilst in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb lute ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this lute in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself." The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave the details fastidious technical care— an inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy, for us, that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insensate. St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way, at last, to that mocking, that accursed spot which brought our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard. I think it was the dark rumour and legendary tales of one buried for five centuries who had himself been a ghoul in his time and had stolen... A potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments. The pale autumnal moon over the graves casting long, horrible shadows. The grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass and the crumbling slabs. The vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death-fires under the yews in a distant corner, the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and... Worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we had sought had centuries before been found in this self-same spot. "'torn and mangled by the claws and teeth "'of some unspeakable beast. "'I remembered how we delved in this ghoul's grave "'with our spades, and how we thrilled "'at the picture of ourselves, the grave, "'the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, "'the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, "'the antique church.' the dancing death-fires, the sickening odors, the gently moaning night-wind, and the strange, half-heard, directionless baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mould and beheld a rotting oblong box "'encrusted with mineral deposits "'from the long, undisturbed ground. "'It was incredibly tough and thick, "'but so old that we finally pried it open "'and feasted our eyes on what it held. "'Much, amazingly much, "'was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years,' The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean, white skull and its long, firm teeth, and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching, winged hound or sphinx with a semi-canine face, and was exquisitely carved in antique Oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression on its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality and malevolence around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom, like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately upon beholding this amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuryed grave, even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature, which sane and balanced readers know. But we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al Hazrad the ghastly soul-symbol of the corpse-eating cult of insatiable lang in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist, lineaments he wrote drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead.' Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavern-eyed face of its owner and closed up the grave as we had found it. As we hastened from that abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day away from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the distant, faint baying of some gigantic hound in the background. But the autumn wind moaned sad and wan, and we uh, could not. Be sure. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone and without servants, in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be frequent fumblings in the night, not only around the doors but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once we fancied that a large opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it. Another time we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion investigation... Revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination alone, that same curiously disturbed imagination which still prolonged in our ears the faint far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum. Sometimes we burn strangely scented candles before it. We read much in Al-Hazred's Necronomicon about its properties and about the relation of ghoul souls to the objects it symbolized and were disturbed by what we read. Then... "'Terror came. "'On the night of September twenty fourth, 1900, <laughs> "'I heard a knock at my chamber door. "'Fancying at St. John's, I, I bade the knocker enter, "'but was answered only by a shrill laugh. "'There was no one in the corridor. "'When I aroused St. John from his sleep, "'he professed entire ignorance of the event "'and became as worried as I.' It was that night that the faint, distant baying over the moor became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, whilst we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase— Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized with the blackest of apprehensions that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but sometimes, sometimes, it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count— our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demoniac baying rolled over the wind-swept moor, always louder and louder. On October 29, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible— to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor-house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November eighteenth, when St. John, walking home after dark from the distant railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons.' His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague black cloud, thing, silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was whisper, "The millet, that damned thing. then, he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens and mumbled over his body of one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life, and as I pronounced the last demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim-litten moor a wide, nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I rose trembling, I know not how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisances before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights I heard the baying again, and before a week was over felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape, obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water, a wind stronger than the night wind rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must at least try any step conceivably logical— What the hound was and why it pursued me were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair, when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death. "'beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighbourhood. "'In a squalid thieves' den, "'an entire family had been torn to shreds "'by an unknown thing which left no trace, "'and those around had heard all night "'above the usual clamour of drunken voices "'a faint, deep, insistent note "'as of a gigantic hound. "'So, at last... I stood again in that unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivied church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas, Oh, the was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated, and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither, unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within, but, whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a a queer interruption when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. Uh, This the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuryed coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge sinewy sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed, not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair, and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguine fangs, yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom, and when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep, sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound, and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade, I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my scream soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from night-black ruins of buried temples of Belial. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed end. Unnameable. This is from a letter Lovecraft wrote in nineteen twenty two. "'Around the old pile is a hoary churchyard "'with interments dating from around 1730 "'to the middle of the 19th century. "'From one of the crumbling gravestones dated 1747, "'I chipped a small piece to carry away. "'It lies before me as I write "'and ought to suggest some sort of horror story. "'I must place it beneath my pillow as I sleep.' Who can say what thing might not come out of the centuried earth to exact vengeance for his desecrated tomb? And should it come, who can say what it might not resemble? Well, the thing to emerge was The Hound, of course, written shortly afterwards— and that terrible Holland churchyard perhaps references the Dutch-reformed Flatbush church Lovecraft and his friend Kleiner had visited. As the name of the main character's friend, Lovecraft used his own nickname for Kleiner. Thus it is that we have the Mangled Sinjin. The story's language is expansive, poetic, plummy, perhaps, influenced by Heisman and, of course, Edgar Allan Poe, never tired of writing about esthetes suffering from overpowering tedium and devastating ennui. That, of course, leads to decadence and perverse pleasures and final doom. The Hound was one of Lovecraft's first submissions to Weird Tales, one of five Later in his career, though, he referred to this story as a dead dog and, well, a piece of junk. Anyway, for a Southern Gothic take on this tale, by the way, have a look at Poppy Z. Bright's His Mouth Will Taste of Wormwood. Enough. Well, maybe not quite enough. Before turning to our modern Lovecraftian tale of the evening, let me mention that while H.P. might have thought of The Hound— As a dead dog, it does represent apparently his first use in public print of the name of the forbidden book, the Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazrad. Now, let's have a modern tale. It comes to us from a book called Poe's Progeny, an anthology of contemporary stories inspired by classic dark fiction. Ho's Progeny was published in 2005 and was edited by Gary Fry. The story, once seen, is by Conrad Williams. Just a bit of background here. Conrad Williams was born in 1969 in Warrington in the U.K. After his A-levels, he worked for a year as a trainee journalist before getting a degree at Bristol, then at Lancaster. He then spent 10 years in London, where he worked as a freelance journalist. Conrad has sold about 80 stories to a diverse range of anthologies and magazines. He is the author of the novels Head Injuries, which has been optioned by Revolution Films, by the way, and London Revenant, as well as the novellas Nearly People and Game. He's also got a collection of short fiction, Use Once, Then Destroy. In 2007, he won the International Horror Guild Award for Best Novel for The Unblemished, He's also a past recipient of the British Fantasy Award for Best Novella, The Scalding Rooms, and in 2010 he won a Littlewood Arc Prize and the BFA for his novel, One. He lives in Manchester with his wife, the writer Rhonda Carrier, their three sons, and a monster Maine Coon Cat. You can find out more about him at www.conradwilliams.net. Here is Conrad Williams' Once Seen.
2: I get the call just gone 3am on a Friday night in the middle of November. Rain had been drumming on the skylight in the bathroom for the last hour or so. I'm not asleep when the phone rings, corner of Aston Street and Markham Road, be there, like ten minutes ago. I'm not going to tell you which town. It, like me, remains unnamed. It doesn't matter. It could be anywhere. Anyone. What difference does a name make? The dregs of clubbers have puked in the back of taxis and minicabs on their way home. An hour and a half from now and the street sweepers will be out in their fluorescent yellow jackets washing the scum from the pavements. You never know what kind of carnage had been going on last night from the look of those glossy paths. I get in the car and put my camera bag on the passenger seat. Inside that... I've got a couple of cannon bodies, a 24mm lens and a couple of zooms, a folding tripod. I've got a set of jeweler's screwdrivers, because the screws on those bodies tend to loosen during fights. A couple of sable brushes to keep everything clean. No playtime filters. No soft toys to distract infants, because I don't do fun portrait shots. No chiffon for the models, because there are no models. I don't do glamour work. Nothing about my job is glamorous. Nothing about it is fun. I drive an unassuming car, a Renault Megane, but I've had the engine souped up something chronic. You only need luck at the accelerator now, and you ought to be in third. It flies. I need fast. Get to, get away. My job is all about speed. It's not just because of the cameras that they call me the flashman. People rely on my stuff. The sooner my stuff is on their table, the sooner they can get on with the nasty stuff they need to do. I might only be a small cog in a big machine, but nobody is as greased as me. A slick car is a bad idea in this line of work. You need to remain inconspicuous. Everything about me is shadow and shade. Me dressed in black in a white room, you wouldn't see me. Because if I'm ever in a room other than my own... There's usually another colour catching the eye. Red, say. So I get to the house, and there's a police cordon. Yellow tape waggling in the wind like a fishing line. Two plods on the door, rank inside in more ways than one. I spot Detective Superintendent Gordon Franks on the stairs, talking to a wide-eyed woman in a ropey-toweling bathrobe, pink and green striped pyjamas underneath, bed hair. His deputy is pouring tea in the kitchen. He raises his eyebrows at me. I nod and he pulls down another mug from the mug tree. Upstairs, I dump my bag and wait for the forensics crew to give me the come on. I check the light. I check the film and the cannon. I check the flashes working. Frank leans in and tells me what to expect. I nod.
3: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: I'm not too surprised. Enough to send my eyebrows north, maybe, but not my heart rate. I don't do camera shake. I go in. I take measurements. I write it all down. I shoot a couple of rolls. Nice bedroom, simply furnished and decorated, lots of stone-coloured throws and cushions on the bed, straight out of living, etc. Turn your bedroom into a boudoir, rediscover stripped floorboards, his blood the new magnolia. For a violent death, it really wasn't so messy. He stuck around in my head for a little while after, like a bad smell, or a tune you can't shake from your thoughts. They often do. But by lunchtime, he was gone, as they always are. But then, a couple of days later, I get another summons. Same M.O., different location. The towpath by the canal, southern part of the town. I take pictures. I think, Jesus, a chef's blowtorch? I'm going home, tiredness unfolding inside me like some badly created origami flower. And the mobile squawks. Not another, not tonight. But it's Stephen Hanbury one of the white coats in forensics I get on with. He tells me both of these deaths, though similar, are unrelated. Neither of them are murders. Suicides. I think of the first one, his eye punctured by a broken bar's cream soda bottle, the humour all over his cheek like an uncooked egg, his brain trying to escape from the orbit. Number two, half his face roasted, his eye poached in its socket. I think... You'd choose an easier way, wouldn't you? Well, Christ, wouldn't you? And they weren't the last. Over the coming weeks, four more men were unearthed. Poor or rich, successful or struggling, educated or pig-shit thick. All of them had done for themselves, and had watched themselves close up doing it. Sharpened pencils, the spiked railings surrounding a primary school. One of them had managed to scour his eyes out with steel wool. The shock had killed him. The only pattern was their gender and their chosen method of Harry Carey. The newspapers went ballistic. A suspicion arose that it was the result of some mystery virus that attacked the optic nerves and caused madness, resulting in extreme measures to relieve the symptoms. There was a sharp hike in eye drop sales. There was a queue at the opticians that reached around the block. I carried on with my work. It's like being a doctor sometimes, this feeling of immunity you get. You feel you can deal with anything and never get affected. Looking through the viewfinder of my camera, seeing the bad stuff through the lens. It was the buffer that I needed in order to get through the day. I was seeing it, but I was not seeing it. The camera was my shield. The camera turned all the shit and blood and panic into something framed, tidied up, Aestheticized. I came in from work one evening to find a half-dozen emails from Pete Acton, a friend of mine who lives in the next town north. He must have been drunk because the letters were all over the place. Transposals, spelling mistakes. It took me an age to decipher what it was he was trying to say. Basically, it was, Come over, I need to talk to you. There was a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, a lamb stew waiting for me in my oven. It was a good tally night. I'd envisioned a hot bath, fresh sheets on the bed, a mug of fucking horlicks. There was no weather to speak of. I pushed them again hard through the center of town till I hit the dual carriageway. Past the golf course, there were fewer houses, more green. Soon there was nothing to see but dark shapes in the night. The lights on the dashboard, the occasional car coming the other way. I stopped thinking. Stopped driving. The McGann drove me. All the lights were off in Pete's house. His Saab was parked in the drive. He lived alone through circumstance rather than choice. His girlfriend was the private flight attendant of a very rich casino owner who operated out of Dubai. She was often away seven or eight months of the year. Pete worked out at the huge petrochemical plant on the Reach. I'd known him since we were kids. I knocked on the door. There was no flickering TV light in any of the windows. I wondered if he'd gone out, resigned to my not coming. Maybe he was unconscious, drunk on the unspeakable retsina he liked so much. I was thinking of pushing off when I heard a latch slip somewhere above my head. Who's that? Harsh voice, raw, afraid. I knew that kind of desperate very well. It's me, I said. You've been emailing me? Your typewriting skills are well bollocksed, you know. What happened? Use your fingers or something? There was a long pause, then. Come round the back, I'll unlock the kitchen door. I moved round the side of the house. The grass in the back garden had been neglected, which surprised me. Pete was usually such a diligent gardener. I was approaching the back door when a shadow filled with muscles and teeth slithered out of the bushes and arrowed towards me, barking hotly. A chain restrained the dog when it was a foot away. I waited for Pete. The dog didn't look like backing down unless it had something to play with, like my face. The door whispered open. Pete said, Roma! Instantly, the dog returned to its berth in the bushes. I stepped inside. Jesus, Pete, I said. You might have said something. ''Since when did you need a guard dog?'' ''Since now,'' he said. I followed his shape as he moved towards the hall. I flicked a light switch. Nothing. ''Pete!'' ''I took all the fuses out,'' he said. He was climbing the stairs now, though his living room was ground floor front of the house. I didn't ask why. I sensed there was going to be a lot of whys coming up. He would talk when he was ready. In his bedroom, he got into bed and pulled the duvet up to his chin.' His face was a dark grey oval writhing with black seeds. I waited. There's a bottle of sky on the cupboard up there if you don't mind warm vodka. I'm driving, I said. I'm not. I passed the bottle over and he sucked on it periodically as he told me about how his life had fallen apart. Then it was over and I wasn't quite sure how I had climbed back into my car how I had ended up on a country lane lashed with thick hard rain how I had left him could have brought myself to leave him after what he'd told me. I'd changed my mind and accepted his offer of a drink shortly after he started his story. No, not after he started, after he switched on his torch and shone the beam in his eyes. You did that yourself, your fucking self, I asked him. My mouth had gone dry, as if I'd woken up from a long night drinking warm vodka. Part of me thought that was exactly what I'd done. And what I had seen was some by-blow of a dream fueled by alcohol and stress and too many photographs of faces torn apart. I was less interested in the why of it than in the how, initially. How did someone become so desperate that they were able to stitch their own eyelids shut? I found the needle he had done it with a while later, after I threw up in his toilet. It was coated with dried black blood. "'stuck against the side of the bath, "'still threaded with the remains of a leather thong. "'Leather. "'He didn't believe cotton thread would be strong enough. "'Christ, what was it he was so afraid of?' "'The rain intensified. "'I didn't know where I was going, not home. "'There would be no chance of sleep for me this night. "'I knew the guy,' he said. "'His head turned this way and that on the pillow, "'trying to get used to the pain.' The cotton covers rasped. On the table by his bed was a large box of painkillers and a half a dozen dead bottles of Asahi. Jesus, I could do with some proper gear. You cruise by the hospitals often enough. You must know some white coats. Get me some diazepam, some fucking morphine. I said, which guy, Pete? Last one in the papers, you know. You were there, getting them to say cheese, battery acid. It's the new Optrex, you know. I knew. I was in the TA with him back in the 90s, he said. After that we set up a mail order company, software mainly, small scale stuff. We did alright, we got on, but he was getting clunky, wanted to settle down with a beautiful wife. He wanted to be a dad, did this online dating thing, saw plenty of women, banged some of them. He was pushing me to try it. I wasn't interested at first, but I saw how his success rate was going. I thought, yeah, I could do it some of that. My woman was off all over the world. I was lonely. So I signed up. Next thing I know, he's going on about this incredible woman he'd met. Says she's got these fantastic eyes. Says he loves the slight overbite of hers. The way it keeps her lips slightly open. He likes how her hair seems to have layers of darkness. I'm like, yeah, okay, but what are our tits like? But he doesn't know. Thing is, she's not from the Lonely Hearts thing. It's someone he's seen on a bus, tucked into the back seat like something ill, snuffling into a handkerchief. Some wide-eyed girl in scuffed boots and tight jeans that need a wash. That's of ethnic jewellery. That's a freckles. He doesn't know her name. He hasn't talked to her. He's only seen her once, but that's enough for him to know she's the one. I get the feeling I know her. She seems as familiar to me as four fingers are to an untrained typist. She's my soulmate. He's lying there with the lymph dripping out of the holes in his eyelids, a half-smile on his face. Resting in his pillow, thinking about how much this woman means to him. All the while, I hear him crunching on big, white, capike pills. The kind of pills they give to new mothers, recovering from a cesarean section. I'm thinking this is a dream, this is a nightmare fueled by painkillers. Your mate, I say. It's a shame she doesn't know that. His hands move in the darkness, his fingers flutter at the ragged sutures keeping in the night. Actually, voice shaky, shaky, I think she does. In the car, rubbing my eyes because they itch so much, rubbing them because I can't stop thinking about how that needle must feel as it punctures the membrane. I think of what he said and how it could be that madness took hold so quickly. I can't get her out of my head, he said. I was seeing her everywhere. She was like that game you play with clouds when you were a child, or Tetris. She was like a Tetris addiction. Every shape I saw in the world was just the right shape for her to fall into. I saw her in between parked cars. I saw her in the small, dead gaps of white noise between TV programmes. She flew out of the moment between light and dark when I turned off the bedside lamp. There are no spaces left in the world for me. I thought I might be able to get rid of her by doing this but she comes out of the colours of unconsciousness. She's the black squares in a crossword puzzle. She's in a film of petrol on the surface of a puddle. I can open my eyes Just a crack sometimes if I've been crying and I can see her in the gleams of dried blood stuck to the stitches. It suits her. She inhabits pain. She feeds off it. I'm thinking of a time when I lived in London. If you want to make a go of things, if you want to make an impact in photography, you have to live in London. I don't care what anybody says. I remember walking along Oxford Street in the first few months after I arrived, and there were options pulling me all over the place. Do I nip into the sports shop because I need to get some new Astroturf trainers for Sunday night football? Do I stop at this phone booth and call the girl I met at the Troy Club the previous night, whose number I managed to appropriate? Do I drop in at the burger den for a couple with cheese? I did none of these, although I did queue up at a busy newsagent's for five minutes in order to buy a guardian and a coke. When I walked past the exit of the tube station at Oxford Circus, a girl called my name. She was Lindsay, a girl I shared a house with in my final year at university in Bristol. I'd not seen her since I moved away over eighteen months previously. Now we'd bumped into each other. We expressed our delight at meeting again and swapped numbers, promised to have coffee sometime And we went on our way, shaking our heads, marvelling at how small the world is. But the world is not small, it's fucking massive. It's happened before, to everyone, and it will happen again. If I'd done any of the things I felt like doing that day, we would have missed each other. She would have come out of the tube and joined the throng on Oxford Street while I was still chewing on a quarter of a pound of burger. If she'd paused upon getting out of the train to retrieve a tissue from her duffel bag or if she'd boarded the train 50 metres further down the platform, or if she'd stopped to get her passport pictures done at the booth and the ticket hall, we'd have missed each other. But everything we did that day had programmed us into a meeting. My forgetting to brush my teeth, her decision to have a second cup of coffee, a collision course had been primed. How many people in the world, how many square miles... How many permutations were my path might bisect yours? I don't want to consider the mathematics. I don't believe it. Looking at us, standing here, who would have thought it? My God. My God. Coincidence is too small a word. It scares me to a point where I can't move. I can't speak. Pete's mentioning of his strange interception and his ocular link to the dead men was enough to lead me into trying to explain my own. Curiosity played a part too. A need to have more of an impact on a case, a chance to be its author rather than merely a grisly illustrator. And what of loneliness? It was all of this. Maybe loneliness above all else. This job takes over so much space, there's not much left for anybody else. It fills your car with the smell of photographic paper and covers the seat with boxes, folders, tripods and folding flash umbrellas. It plasters the walls at home with yellow post-its about ligatures, stab wounds, exit wounds and the dark marks of strangulation. There's no room for hi-hun, no room for smiling 2.4. No room for call me. I realised with a jolt that it's been a good five years. A good five years? Why do people say that? It's been a grim five years. Fucking grim. Since I last woke up next to a woman whose name was on my mind for more than an evening or inked into my address book. My job was my wife. I sat and ate with it when I came home at night. I slept with it. It was a good marriage, really. We never argued. I decided to take a drive out to one of the locations where the bodies had been found, al fresco, the one that I hadn't covered. There is a canal that runs through the south of the town, very pretty, lots of colourful narrowboats, ducklings, cottages, watercolourists on the banks, kids with breadcrumbs. Julian Fellows was found on the towpath, beneath the humpbacked bridge that supports a little bit of B-road. This guy was the practical type. He'd made use of what lay around him at the time, head-butting a vicious railing that was meant to keep the hoi polloi from the gardens of a canal-side cottage painted white, engulfed with ivy and studded with occasional metal butterflies. So twee it makes your teeth itch. I was kicking about on the towpath for a while, wondering what it was I thought I might unearth, but knowing full well it was just a way to keep me from my cold, empty bed, when I realised... I was being watched. It was that burning you get on the back of the neck, the kind that makes you feel embarrassed, as if the teacher had been watching you pick your nose and wipe it under the desk for the last ten minutes. Lost something, came the voice. It was an old man on one of the narrowboats, sitting on a deck chair. We chatted for a bit, but the feeling didn't go away. It was more and more like being invaded. His eyes weren't particularly searching, and after his initial suspicion, he became warmer, garrulous even, about the death, and his interest in my job seemed genuine. In the end, I asked him if he'd ever been in the police or the services, that weight that comes with interrogative training. Of being able to glare a response out of people without even uttering a word was incredibly powerful. I felt myself being peeled away like hands tearing up lettuce leaves as they search for bugs and grit. I was a welder forty years, mate, he said. On the ships up a Camal Laird at first, then later fitting pipes on toilets in factories and school and that. Nearest I ever came to the Flatfoots was knobbing one in Tenerife in 1975. A radio inside his boat was playing the ink spots. The atmosphere on the towpath was oppressive. A sign nailed to the bridge read, no day permits. A headache unwound itself and painted everything black. I mumbled something about having to shoot off and fumbled away from the towpath to the steps leading up to the hump-backed bridge. Music followed. We three were all alone, living in a memory, my echo, my shadow and me. I bypassed windows, looking in on a kitchen in which bodies were slumped around a table, either praying or asleep at the curve in the path which took me steeply onto the bridge i stopped there was a figure standing at its apex looking down at the canal and the man in his narrow boat long black hair hung wetly from the edges of a raised hooded top an oversized black leather jacket was slung over the jogging top matched to a tight black skirt that almost met a pair of scuffed black boots coming the other way, but failed by a couple of inches of thigh. I watched that pale skin for a while as her legs shifted against each other. The boots made soft noises against the brickwork. It began to rain. I heard the man in the narrowboat curse, the squeal of his deck chair as he folded it away, the click of his door closing against the weather. The words of the song cut off, The girl didn't move. She could only have been five feet. Her head barely rose above the copping stones on the bridge. I realised, despite the hood and the shield of hair, that she was looking my way. The rain intensified. The trees, sloping up the hill to the wood, nestling against the village, misted out for a while, creating a backdrop that was almost tropical. The only sound was water slushing in the canopy and my voice surprising me, asking if everything was all right. Can I help you? I asked. Are you okay? I was forty feet, fifty feet away. My heart was beating, as if I was looking at a fox rather than a woman getting wet in the rain. I could clearly see the curve of her right eye as she watched me, the way it stared, and then flicked its attention away slightly, as if she were blinking away the rain or the embarrassment of our exchange do you know pete acton i asked she began to walk away moving off down the bridge and i didn't feel able to stop her or to begin to understand why i should even try lightning sucked the color of the street into the sky and thunder barreled into the vacuum slapping me into action i ran after her but by the time i'd reached the foot of the bridge the main street was deserted i saw a bus pull out onto the road its interior light flickering The soft curve of a hood moved against the back seat, a hand reaching up, pulling it down as the lights flickered again, making it difficult to see more. I trudged back the way I had come, considering trying to track the bus down in the car and immediately dismissing the notion and myself for being so stupid. At the spot on the bridge where I had observed the girl, I noticed the bushes immediately behind me were mashed and torn, some of the leaves blackened. I gave them a kick adding a bit of damage of my own not sure why I felt so confused frustrated and threatened and I went back to them again inside I told myself off as best I could with the rag I kept in the camera bag and watched the rain as it hammered on the windscreen when I looked at the dashboard clock I saw that six hours had passed since my visit to Pete it was the dead of night excitement over I was shaking with cold I turned the key and drove home All the way back, I couldn't keep my eyes off the rear view mirror. I get the call at just gone five. A Monday morning at the tail end of everything. The month. The year. My tether. A day and a night of snow has lent a confection to the roofs and car parks. The cuttings and the skip on my road. I'm at the window, stealing a quick coffee before I get outside. Wondering about skips. Everyone looks at them as they walk past checking for a bargain or a shock. I know a woman who found a deluxe version of Monopoly in a skip once, and an Ames chair. I know a man who found a severed arm with its fingers removed in a skip. I had to go and take pictures. Everybody looks at a skip. Someone should start selling advertising space. It's a week since I saw the girl, and my mind has been unable to cling to anything else. She's like a chameleon in my thoughts, emerging through the colour and shape of the other things I consider until there's no space for anything but her. My brain is her-sized. It will accommodate her happily, and nothing else. In the skip, her face morphs out of the aggressive meld of broken timber and chipped brickwork. She threatens to solidify in the coils of steam from my mug the silver of light on the edge of her eye, the wet blades of her hair, her mouth slightly open, the lips swollen, the edge of teeth behind them, the scorch of her breath behind them, the spit in her throat behind that, the beat of her heart behind that. I imagine it all, I know it all as intimately and as disinterestedly as my own. I drive the three miles to an abattoir on the edge of town, hidden from the main drag by a series of muddy roads that grow ever thinner, ever poorer. A wood muscles up against the back wall of the slaughterhouse. In this way, the screams from within will be better absorbed. Everything is laired with a white crust. Sleigh bells ring. Are you glistening? I'm too aware of the dark and the open space leading away above my head as I get out of the car. I almost drop my camera as the shock and the shock at my shock kicks in and I accidentally shoot off a few exposures in my effort to grab it close to me. Better the expense of a few lost frames than a cracked lens. It's a relief to get through the doors into the relative warmth. The stink of sweat and death hangs in the air like jungle heat. The job. Same as always, but somehow not. Measurements, notes, shudder release, flash, the gallows banter with colleagues wearing makeup, courtesy of alcohol and insomnia, cold air channeling through the concrete troughs and baffles of the abattoir, the steel sluices carry away the paltry juices from the punctured eyes of Geoffrey Spaven, the drill that did for him in his hand. On one of the surfaces is a variety of grim-looking instruments. Bolt guns, flensing knives, spikes and skewers. I'm hardly thinking when I sweep a small, battered blowtorch and a couple of those vicious blades into my pocket. But instantly I I feel better, safer. Christ, what was he thinking? comes a voice out of the sour shadows. Have a look at that bit, comes the reply. What he was thinking is still stuck to it. Laughter. Echoes. Shutter release. Release. The car, the wild acres of space, wheeling above me like something unpinned, unreliable. It could just as well be the surfaces of my brain, black ribbons on spooling, spilling me back into the nothing from which everything is sourced. Back at the flat, I was so hungry I hadn't eaten for hours. Nothing in the fridge, so I phone through for a delivery pizza with everything on it. Have I even been out tonight? Dawn is a layer of pink coral on the horizon. I stare at the camera on the work surface and it stares back at me. Your move, Bucco. I move through to the dark room and process the film. She starts out of the sprockets at me. She's in the diffuse halo cast by the red bulb when it switches thrown. She emerges from the developer an instant before the images I trapped. Who are you? But I'm asking a skewed shot of the abattoir roof, the miles of black scudding away above it, the inadvertent shots when I dropped the camera. It isn't right, even though the scene was never intended to be captured. It's not that I can't take a bad picture, I can, I do, frequently. It's just that, well, this isn't right. At first I, I think it must be excessive camera shake, but that would mean the entire picture would be affected by blur, when only the uppermost section of the print was streaked with what looked like Vaseline, as if I'd used some or a piece of scrunched up cellophane to produce a softening effect. But my job isn't about softening, it's about hard, brutal fact." Some foreign object trapped in the body of the camera then. I developed the remaining prints, my head filling with repair fees. But none of the others taken inside the building were marked in any way. Only those accidental three or four shots taken by the car. I checked the camera case and the lens regardless. Nothing beyond the day-to-day scuffs a two-year-old body was likely to see. The lens hood was intact, the lens itself immaculate. I sat back in the chair and stared at the red bulb. Atmospheric anomaly, a bruise in the cosmos, something terrible growing in my brain. I get the call. I get the call. I'm here for everyone who picks up the phone, but there's nobody picking it up for me. I try Pete Acton, but his phone is disconnected. I could drive out there, but I'm scared of what I'll find. I try the relatives of the deceased, but they've left town they've gone ex-directory, they don't want to talk. I can see her in the webbing between my fingers when I raise my hands to rub my eyes. I close my eyes and she's there, knitting herself into the warp and weft of my secret colours. Nights I spend driving around, haunting the bridge over the canal but she's never there. I track the bus route that she left the village on that night and Cruise the alleys and avenues near every stop, but she doesn't emerge. The needle on the fuel indicator is hovering above empty, but it becomes a blade of wet hair. And somewhere five miles south of home, in a dank gully, cutting between fields loaded with the heavy, high smell of pig shit, I run out of petrol and grind to a halt. Outside that thin sheet of plastic and metal, I think about what I would do if I found her but there's only one answer to that. The main question is how would I do it and what will happen to me if I don't? By the time I stop thinking, I've walked until the damp from the fields has seeped through my jeans and turned the bottom thirds of my legs into unfeeling logs. The dark is greater here, so much so that the stars you never see in built-up areas come screaming through the black at you. Billions of lifeless lights slowly burning themselves out I know about that. Too hot to handle. The gravity of all those stars threatens to suck me free of the Earth's surface. I blink and she shimmers into view, forming her own constellation. Join the dots. I rub my eyes hard and keep walking. I don't know this place. I've lived here all my life, but now I'm lost. The sky, or what I've always believed is the sky, feels as though it should be doing something. Feels as though it should be filling with rain or snow or something. Anything. But there is no sky. There's just an unspeakable jump from the top of my head to the furthest reaches of never. Nothing tangible to enclose us. No protective umbrella. Everything is too empty. Too ready for her to come and invade the space. I've too many gaps inside me. Too many nukes and shadows. Where she can hide? I'm misting on the photograph. What could it have been? My legs strafing through nettles, long grass, convolvulus, brambles. The wet flap of denim, the tear of thorns against fabric, the soft suck of the ground beneath. Everything wants a piece of me. I'm so scared already that the knowledge that something is keeping pace with me has been since I came to my senses, flailing through this fucking field. Can't do anything to my nerves. Fear of this kind is never incremental. There's no doubting the shape of the sounds that I'm hearing. There's nothing else to hear but the echo of my own progress through the grass, though more measured, intentful. I wish I'd been more assertive to those who loved me through the years. I wish I hadn't been such a monster. I don't want... I don't want to... I feel hot breath on my neck at the same time that she steps from the dark nimbus of trees up ahead, at the same time that I realise what it was that had steamed up the viewfinder outside the abattoir, at the same time that I realise she was never blinking away the rain that night on the bridge, but she had been staring at whatever stood at my shoulder, my own breath coming quick. I can see it ghosting out of me. She plays in its whirls, and I see how this is no longer an illusion she's really there this slight pale woman with the presence of a god i have to look away she's the olfactory hallucination that presages a brain tumor she's my own personal warning an omen petrified projected she says i'm sorry she says don't worry Christ, Jesus, please don't worry. You mustn't. You mustn't. I was almost sick when it barged past me. I surged blindly away in the direction I hoped would take me to the car. Although I didn't know what I would do once I got there beyond hide behind it, the shape of terror was beyond me, but it was massing at my shoulders, as insubstantial but as unavoidable as a cloud of mosquitoes. It ballooned out of me until it waded every corner of the night. Already it had finished and was coming back, crashing through the trees, the sounds of splintering timber cracking through the stifling dark. And then I had to start yelling, a mad babble, any noise at all, because it hadn't finished after all, and I didn't want to dwell for too long on what those deep, splitting sounds must be. I thought she was dead, but here was her voice, broken and bubbling, seeping into the loam, every liquid part of her gurgling away. You know what you have to do. Save yourself. Be fighting. Save yourself. I tumbled into the car, pinging my knee against the driver's side door, but I barely felt it. Who was she protecting, it or me? It really didn't matter. We two were indivisible. I understood the desperation that drove those others to blind themselves. Death as a possible outcome was an acceptable risk. I couldn't face looking in a mirror again and seeing something that was me, but not me, yet was more me than the person I accepted as myself. I could hear it out there gravitating towards me, but not for long. How could I find myself if I couldn't see the hand in front of my face? Somehow I managed to fire up the chef's blowtorch and turn the flame on the knives, shivering in my hand, until the steel burned white.
1: As mentioned, Once Seen was published in a book called Poe's Progeny, a volume I recommend highly. And after all, I guess Lovecraft himself is one of Poe's progeny. We only have to listen to tonight's story again and hear the echoes of Poe, the oblong boxes, the red deaths, etc., Conrad Williams' new collection is from P.S. Publishing and is entitled Born with Teeth. That gives one the shivers. It is at the printers right now and will be available in October, just like Tales to Terrify Volume one. And thank you again, Gareth Stack, another grand reading, Gareth. Gareth recently read Anna Taborska's Tale of Feline Wiles Schrödinger's Human. Keep reading this sort of fair publicly, Gareth, and you could lose your comedy creds. You can find out more about Mr. Stack at his website, ladyboyjesus.com. We'll put a link below. And there we have it. Lovecraft and Williams together at last. And thank you again, old man Parker, for your suggestion. So now, gather your wraps, children of the night. It's chilly out there. Wind off the lake comes howling this time of year. Hopefully it'll remain that way, but but who knows? We're between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur tonight. But when I was a student, I lived for a time in the basement of the home of one of my professors, Dr. Myron Talby, in a celebratory way for feasts and the like. I became for a while a member of the large Talbi family, and as I speak now, I'm reminded of the liturgy. What is written on Rosh Hashanah is sealed on Yom Kippur. Well, even so, there's always prayer, charity, repentance. That can unseal much. Anyway, it's the day before autumn, Halloween draws closer, then Thanksgiving, then, well, you know what then. So, up and doing, be bright and chipper, breathe the wind, let the clouds scud, and if you hear a distant baying as of a gigantic hound, well, you're probably already home and in bed, and beginning the season's pleasant dreams. Hmm?
3: This presentation has been brought to you by
4: the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you
0: make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
1: Fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions
4: at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.